Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, episode number 68. At the time of this recording, Bitcoins are trading at $238 each, and everybody's favorite LTB coin is trading at .000106 US dollars. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Now that's gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining me today as I podcast once again from East Nashville, Tennessee, with my trusty Siberian Husky Maxwell by my side. Say hello, Maxwell. We're two Bitcoin enthusiasts who love talking about Bitcoins and sharing what we learn with you, the listener. Longtime listeners, thank you so much for joining us. New listeners, we hope you enjoy the show. On today's show, I speak with Daniel Kraywitz, one of the founders of the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. Daniel and I discuss the merits and the pitfalls of cryptocurrencies, altcoins, and the cypherpunk movement. And a special treat, listeners, halfway through the interview, we get to hear my new single, Crypto, the official cryptocurrency song, as performed by our very own Rastaman John. This is a short but very sweet three-minute concert that you will not want to miss. All right, listeners, today I have a special treat. I am speaking with Daniel Kraywitz, the founder of the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. And Daniel is speaking with us today from Austin, Texas. Daniel, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. And I'm a founder, not the founder. Oh, okay. And how many founders are there? There's three. There's me, Michael Goldstein, and Pierre Rochard. And uh, we started the website in 2013 because we saw a lack of interest or um, less exposure for the original cypherpunk ideas that Bitcoin grew out of. So we decided that we wanted to make sure these ideas were kept alive and they had a nice place on the internet. And we've been publishing original cypherpunk articles since then. Okay. We also write uh, commentary on uh, the Bitcoin movement. And of course, the anarchist wing of the Bitcoin movement has also been marginalized. So we wanted to keep that around. Okay. Now, when you use the term cypherpunk, can you describe that to people, what that actually means? Sure. The cypherpunks were a movement in uh, the, the late 80s and 90s. Well, that's when they were most active, based around the idea that cryptography can make people more free. We can use ideas like encryption and anonymity networks and digital cash to create a, a world that helps people to be more independent of government. And allows them to engage in communication and trade without government oversight, whether the government likes it or not. And um, their ideas have become reality today, and and Bitcoin grew out of the cypherpunk movement. Uh, We know Satoshi was a cypherpunk because of the works that he cited. Um, Most of the citations in the original Bitcoin paper are cypherpunk papers that, that were originally published on the cypherpunk mailing list. Very interesting. So the cypherpunk movement, you're still part of that movement. Where do you stand when it comes to the crypto anarchist movement? Well, I don't think that there's a big difference. I would say that's about the same. So Tim May, one of the founders of, of the cypherpunk mailing list, also invented the word crypto anarchy. So cypherpunk might be the name of the movement and crypto anarchy might be the... Uh, the name of the ideology, uh, okay. but it's the same thing. The idea is to, to build 
communities online that are resistant to government intervention through the use of cryptography. Okay, you know, in my imaginings, there's always a lot going on that we don't see. There are people working hard to build decentralized systems and decentralized platforms and working on decentralized projects that the rest of us don't know anything about yet because they haven't come out and told us yet. What do you think about that? Well, it's one of the strengths of the Bitcoin world is that it's all open source. Anybody can build tools and the ones that work will become widely adopted. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a conversation with my mother last year when, uh, you know, she was saying, what if what if China bans Bitcoin? And I said, well, I mean, what matters is what the people are doing that are not known, that are programming in their uh, basement somewhere. Anyway, I told her that we were more powerful than the Chinese government. And uh, so she thought I was a little bit crazy after <laughs> that point. But, uh, but, well, let me also mention, I, I think decentralized is kind of a buzzword right now. And there aren't necessarily reasons to decentralize everything. Um, decentralization tends to be very costly and it's it's difficult to get it to work right. Uh, and it's not necessarily the best thing to do in all applications. Okay. The, the reason that Bitcoin works well as a decentralized application is just that we can't afford to have monetary institutions because they all get corrupted. Mm -hmm. But if we're dealing with something that's less um, less corruptible, it might be a uh, excessive to try to decentralize it. So how do we, for instance, with banking or with finance, I understand that it is you know, much more difficult and much more expensive to decentralize. Everything decentralized is kind of unrealistic, you know, especially right away. You have this massive infrastructure built in hierarchical structure built over hundreds, if not thousands of years leading up to what we have today. So it'd be hard to just bring that down, even though there are aspects of it that really are legitimately a house of cards ready to fall, waiting to fall. But, you know, how can we right now, today, how can we celebrate and work toward systems that are decentralized, systems that don't have the corruption that the centralized hierarchical structures have that we're so used to? How can we work toward decentralization in an affordable way? Sure. Well, I mean, I think that the best thing that anybody can do is to try to make Bitcoin itself more profitable to get into. And of course, we're already seeing the, the big banks starting to show an interest in Bitcoin. You know, who knows what will come of that. But really, the more people that get drawn into the Bitcoin economy, the better. And if you're, you're not, you know, technically capable of, of uh, you know, writing your own peer-to-peer uh, -peer application or whatever, the best thing is to find some uh, some economic niche that makes Bitcoin a more convenient place for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. the, the more profits available in the Bitcoin economy, the better. And of course, I don't mean like starting startups. That's something you could do, but just any kind of profits. Like if you are a taxi driver or a carpenter or anybody who can get more of an edge by using Bitcoin rather than uh, credit cards or the banking system. Right, or any business that's online is an obvious candidate for accepting Bitcoins, right? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't understand why it's taking so long for Bitcoin to be incorporated in everything online. It, it's so easy, they might as well just do it. I agree. I think a big part of it is how, while people don't recognize it, your average person doesn't recognize it, they are, people are, the masses are 
pretty well controlled. You know, these days, as long as your average person knows that the big game, whether it's basketball, baseball, football, hockey, whatever, the big game is going to be on this weekend and I get to, you know, I get to take work off because I don't have to work on the weekends and I get to buy a 12-pack of beer and order a pizza. As long as I can do that, hey, man, life is good. And so, you know, if we happen to be invading another country during that football game or whatever, why would we care? We're busy watching football. So I think that people are much more controlled. Their thinking is much more controlled through the public education system, how they perceive the world and how they perceive the world in relation to the United States. Those things have been formed by public education in certain ways. I don't think people realize how controlled their minds are when it comes to things like bitcoins. When something new comes along, I think it's really difficult difficult for people to break away from the norm because the norm is so comfortable. Even though they may hate their job and their team may have lost last weekend, there's always this coming weekend. There's always the chance that their team is going to win. You know, there's that concert they want to go to because they love Lady Gaga or whoever it is. She's actually a pretty good singer. I heard her duet with Tony Bennett. But anyway, (laughs) I don't want to digress into that. So I think that's one of the answers right there of why it's taking so long, because people are, what do they call it, the normalcy bias. People are biased toward that which they consider to be the norm. And anything that's outside of that norm just seems scary. You know, they're biased toward that. It's not part of the norm, so they don't want to know about it. Okay. Well, first of all, we're not attacking some other country. I mean, I don't I don't consider myself to be personally involved in any any attack, so uh, you know, don't lay it on me. Um, <laughs> you mean? Do you mean? But, do you mean you personally? Yeah, me personally. I'm I'm not I'm not involved that the United States attacks anybody. Well, um, you know, if you've ever paid any money in taxes, then your tax money has actually gone. Or, you know, if you pay tax when you go buy a food item. Theoretically, you've helped and continue to help fund these unjust wars. Yeah, well, those those are all coerced out of me. Um, well, I agree with that. Your, I agree as, with that. But we are all responsible for our own actions. Yes. As to your point about people being controlled, I mean, it's all relative. Uh, you know, the the way the way we live now is so much better than in you know any any time in the past, and especially with the internet being available, it's very easy for people to. Um, to have access to ideas, at, you know, at the tip of their fingertips that mm-hmm. are, uh, you know, would have been difficult for them to find er- earlier. Sure, uh, even even ten years ago or twenty years ago. Yeah. But when you talk about the masses and, and opportunities, one thing that would give your average American, for instance, the opportunity that you're speaking of to surf the internet and to learn all of these things would be well, they would have to have the money to have a computer. They would have to live in a community that encouraged that sort of behavior, encouraged internet behavior that had an internet connection and that encouraged education and seeking new knowledge. And not every community in the United States, impoverished areas in particular, there's not a lot of encouraging of that. Children are born and they're taught you either get a welfare check or you go to work at a job that you don't like. So a lot of these people don't have access to internet and all of those things, but your point is still well taken. Sure. Well, and as to this, you know, normalcy bias, there's a way that that can work in our favor too. You know, the fact that it's now possible to, uh, you know, buy and sell contraband online so easy, you know, and to create a, an online store that's, you know, open to the public that anybody can access uh, as long as they can download the Tor browser, mm-hmm. you know, that's really going to normalize 
the black market in a really big way. And we're already starting to, to see this. It, it really is amazing to me to see articles in mainstream publications, not in you know the criminal section, but in like the technology section on on the Silk Road and on other uh, dark markets and on how, how they work and how they are uh, how they are improving. And I'm actually thinking about doing all of my my Christmas shopping this year over the dark market. I mean, there's plenty of legal stuff that you can get there too that you know my family might be interested in. I'm not sure if I can I can actually do all of my Christmas shopping that way, but uh, we'll see what I can come up with. What do you think of Open Bazaar? Do you like those guys? Yeah, well, I really like their their ideas and their enthusiasm. Uh, I haven't looked at the, the code base, but I've heard it's a real mess. And, um, you know, if anybody is uh, a, an experienced open source developer who would, uh, you know, like to try to clean it up, they, they might need that. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the project. Uh, it... it um, it, it could well turn out to be a, a big idea. And, and of course, I know some of the people who are involved in, in working on it. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm biased. But Well, it seems like one of the more worthy projects out there. I am uh, really looking forward to being a uh, regular customer on Open Bazaar once it's up and running. So let's talk about cryptocurrencies and let's talk about app currencies uh, you were the first person I heard use that phrase, app currencies, in reference to a currency that is created in order to fund an app or to fund a project, an app coin. Right? And I know that you're not a big fan of altcoins and cryptocurrencies, whereas in a lot of ways, I really am. And uh, I'm invested in some of them. Not a lot, but, you know, I'm invested in a lot of them, but not a lot in each one, I should say. So, yeah, let's talk about uh, digital currencies. Let's talk about cryptocurrencies. Because if I'm not mistaken, uh, Daniel, this is how you and I first met. It was by way of the show notes on Let's Talk Bitcoin. After one of my shows, you commented about altcoins and you referred me to some articles you'd written. And I read those articles. That was months ago. And now we're finally interviewing. So talk to us about cryptocurrencies, altcoins, and app coins. We know there are a ton of them out there, a new one every day. And we know that some of these coins cannot be trusted, (laughs) right, Uh, as has been proven in the past. So talk to us about altcoins and app coins. Sure. Well, yeah, anytime anytime somebody promises a guaranteed return, that's always a good sign. (laughs) Um, But so um, here's the basic problem. Um, For any good to have value, people need to want to hold it over time. Um, If people want to hold it for less time, uh, then necessarily the value must go down because you're having the same amount of the good being held by fewer people at a time. So the reason that people hold stocks or bonds over time is obvious. Stocks give dividends, or at least theoretically, they might at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and bonds give interest, so you have to hold them over time in order to get that value. Currency does not um, 
provide value over time. If you hold a currency, it, it just stays the same thing. Uh, and of course, most currencies will lose value over time uh, due to inflation. Um, the reason that a person would want to hold a currency over a period of time, and, and, and while I'm talking about the, the ultimate reason that, that currencies have value, people can also speculate in currencies, but the, the underlying reason that a currency has value is the network effect between all the people using it. Um, so just think if you landed on a, a desert island with a, a culture that was isolated from the rest of the world and uh, everybody was using beads or something as money, something that you know could be easily manufactured uh, in, in our society. Mm -hmm. For them, it's difficult to manufacture and everybody uses it as money. Well, uh, you're going to want to have some just because they're in demand everywhere. So it's easy to make trades with it. Uh, and it's not, it's not anything about the, the beads themselves that makes them valuable. It's the fact that everybody is using them as money. Mm -hmm. Everybody recognizes those as money, yes. Right. So um, the, that's, that's the value of money is that it provides for random unknown opportunities. If, if you have a high cash balance, you're liquid, you're prepared to take advantage of any potential trade that might come up. Whereas if you have your value stored in something less liquid like a house you know, or a bunch of gold bars buried in your yard or something, then if, if a really good opportunity comes along, you might not have the opportunity to take advantage of it. Money is for random opportunities. And the more that society as a whole keeps in its cash balance, the, the better prepared it is for random opportunities. Well, and also random problems. If, if everybody had a high cash balance, there couldn't be a stock market crash because there would be lots of people ready to buy into it. Now, this strategy works best when people are all using the same money. Because if there are two kinds of money in use at the same time, then that makes more more friction for uh, people to take advantage of these uh, random opportunities. So there's always a tendency for a society to use one money, for one form of money to emerge as the standard. And the way this relates to altcoins or app coins is that say you create some distributed system um, and you with some app coin attached to it like made safe or ethereum or something mm -hmm. um, for, first of all the app coin doesn't earn, earn dividends or interest so there isn't actually any real relationship between the success of the app and the value of the app coin there, there isn't any real reason that a this a successful app should mean that the value of the app coin goes up or anything. There's no, there isn't any necessary relationship there, as there is with a company issuing stock. Because if the company succeeds, then eventually they they may start to issue dividends. I know what you're saying, but two things: one, people like to hold on to things. People do. Certain people do like to hoard. Uh, some people call that saving for a rainy day. Some people call that hoarding. And saving and hoarding in certain instances, of course, is subjective. 
I may have money in my bank account and someone else may say, what are you doing hoarding that money? And I can say, no, I'm saving it because I may have an emergency or I may need it someday. This is all fantasy because I don't have any money in the bank and I don't live that way. It's kind of a hand-to-mouth situation over here. That's why you guys need to send me your tips uh, <laughs> to keep coffee in the kettle and the lights on, remember? But anyway, that's one thing that people like to hold on to things. And the other thing is that people get excited when everybody else is doing something. Yeah. So you can look at an altcoin right now or even Bitcoin and say, the price has been just sitting there. It's kind of stagnant. But you know, what if something happens and all of a sudden you have a mass movement toward this digital currency and you have all of a sudden not just a slow progression of more and more people adopting it and using it, but, you know, something that looks like exponential growth toward that. All of a sudden you could have one of the digital currencies overnight be in the news and everybody talking about it and everybody buying it, right? As the price went up and skyrocketed, a lot of people who had been holding previously would be selling, <laughs> right? They'd be selling high, and a lot of people would be buying in high. We've seen this before, but I think we cannot discount human nature and the potential for humans to do stupid things and the potential for fear and greed to take over when it comes to digital assets, when it comes to digital tokens, when it comes to altcoins, app coins, um, Bitcoin. Yeah. I think we're going to continue to see this, and I think we're going to continue to see new altcoins that, you know, really have nothing of substance backing them. I still think we're going to see new altcoins that people get excited about and start trading them and start hoarding them, and I think we'll see prices go up and down and people make money all along the way. If everybody saw, wow, this coin, let's call it a, the John coin, because that's my name. I like the idea of a John coin, by the way. I'm joking. Um, everybody saw the John coin. Man, everybody's using the John coin. Well, there are always going to be people who say, hey, wow, if everybody's using it and there's a limited supply, let's say there's only a billion, that means that if everybody in the world eventually is using this, the value could go up just by virtue of the fact that there's a limited supply, right? And if 5 billion people are eventually using this, wow, certainly it's going to go up in value. So that's a speculator talking. The speculator maybe has no interest in tipping people, no interest in using it ever. But it seems to me that just speculation alone, even if that altcoin never comes to anything, that we could see the value of that coin go up substantially over time. Now, of course, it may just crash at some point because, like we're talking, there is no real... <laughs> intrinsic value to it, you know, or real true use case value for a lot of these coins. But it just seems to me that the speculation aspect alone could cause a coin. Well, we've seen it, it has caused coins to go up and people have been able to profit from that. Yeah, we've definitely seen that. But yeah, as you said, if it's just speculation driving the value up, that's not a sustainable source of value. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I would say that it could go up, but it'll it'll crash back down eventually. Yes. And if people if people understood the the economic principles that I was just talking about just now, then that wouldn't happen anymore because people wouldn't start to think, well, you know, maybe I should hold on to something because maybe it'll it'll go up because if it was if it was widely understood that the value of money is the network effect then there would be fewer people expecting there to be a lot of speculators. So the more that I teach people that the value of money is the network effect, the less that altcoins will go up uh, when somebody creates a new one. And people are learning. You, you have to 
create a, a much more elaborate kind of uh, altcoin now in order to attract anybody's attention. There's there's much fewer of them going around, and they all have uh, all kinds of um, bells and whistles attached to them. But my my argument is always that you, you can't just tell me that a, an altcoin has some interesting feature to convince me to get some you would have to convince me that it will overtake Bitcoin in popularity because that's the only way that it can ultimately succeed. If it doesn't overtake Bitcoin, then it will lose the battle for the network effect. It's hard to say because like if we look at elementary schools, back when I was in elementary school, we traded now and laters, these little square-shaped candies. They still make them, right? And we had them in these long packs and you'd trade one color for the other color and then maybe you'd trade for a baseball card or something like that. So this really was our currency. And I think that people would even occasionally trade them for money. You'd buy one for a nickel from somebody. So, you know, that was, we considered that our own currency because we were kids, right? We were elementary school kids. But it seems to me that if there are people who are into gaming and they know that, for instance, if you and I knew that you could buy this currency from me and that would allow you to get two hours on a specific game, so you buy that currency from me, let's just say for U.S. dollars, or you buy it from me for uh, tokens from another game, or you buy it from me for Bitcoin, and that allows you to go, let's say, onto the dark net and play this weird game that your parents wouldn't want you to see that you're playing, but you can only play it if you have this special currency. Well, you are going to really want that currency, and the kids who get addicted, as I call it, to these games, they're going to have to have that currency, and they'll do anything to get it, paying in Doge, paying in Litecoin, whatever it takes to get this currency so that they can play that specific game. We could see a future. People like Andreas Antonopoulos believes that there could be down the road thousands of digital currencies that maybe maybe someone's having a party and they send out digital currencies to the people that they want to show up. And in order to be allowed into the party, you have to show it on your phone that you have some of this digital currency, some of this digital token. And that allows you to, you know, you start out the evening with $50 of it because you've paid for it. And that allows you to get beers from the keg all evening as it chips away. You go up to the guy that's running the keg or the bartender and you hold up your phone and it debits off of that. So it seems to me that we could in the future have many, many different currencies that allowed people to do things both legal and illegal, but that it would always go back to what do you need to pay your taxes, you know, the sad truth, or to pay your rent or your mortgage, you know, the other sad truth and food. It may always have to go back to something akin to a federal currency, whether it's digital or paper or what have you, a debit system that's based on a tattoo or a QR code or an implant that you have. That sounds really sad, but you know we could see that kind of a future where many, many different currencies, but when all is said and done, you may have a million of those, whatever they're called, John coins. You still, when it comes time to pay your rent or your mortgage or your taxes or to buy some food, you've got to convert it into that currency, whether it's Bitcoin or US dollars, in order to pay. So it does seem to me that we could have many different currencies that people are playing with. That would only be limited by the human imagination. Okay, well, uh, so there are three points that I want to make on that. You've talked a long time. Let me make sure I get through all of them. But so the, <laughs> the first, the first thing is, um, you know, you're you're talking about using this particular currency to play some some game online over the darknet. Well, that still doesn't mean that anybody is holding the currency over time. Um, you know, if you're saving in Bitcoin, you can buy your special game currency for playing and then spend it 
a fraction of a second later. Sure. There isn't anything to stop people from doing that. And that means that the value of the currency is not being driven up just because people want to play the game. And, and once again, there is an incentive for exchanges to work that way and to allow people to hold these extra currencies for the shortest amount of time possible. Okay, but what happens if that game gets more and more popular and then people realize, wow, I can't find that currency. You call me, you email me, you, hey, I, hey, I can't find this currency. Daniel, do you know where I can get this currency? I don't know. Finally, I find out where I can get it so I can play my game. And there's just well, a... it, it doesn't that it still doesn't matter. I mean, the, if lots of people want to play the game, that doesn't mean that any of them are holding the currency over an extended period of time. And they all have the incentive to try to hold it for the least amount of time. It's it just that that isn't that isn't a good reason to expect the value of the currency to go up. So, OK, the second second point is you talked about somebody issuing a currency that was worth stuff at, at a party and they would exchange it for beer. Well, if, if I issue tokens and I, w with some sort of guarantee attached to them, and I said that like one, one John coin is, it can be exchanged for one beer or something, mm -hmm. then, then that is a sustainable value, but not because it's a currency, it's because it's, it's a beer substitute. And it's no different, well, I mean, it's, it's basically like a banknote that says it's it's exchangeable for a certain amount of gold. It's it's not the note itself that has value. It's the contract that uh, that you have with the issuer that it, it can be exchanged for gold. None of these these altcoins are have that kind of contract attached to them. So if you're talking about something like MadeSafe, you have to use the safe coins to interact with the MadeSafe system, but they're also not guaranteed to be valued for any particular kind of service or or any amount or anything. People can exchange it for anything. So there there isn't any sustainable value there. And so finally, uh, let's see, what was the other thing? Oh yeah, you were talking about having to uh, exchange back to pay taxes. Uh, there There is this argument that uh, the the dollar can maintain value because you have to pay taxes in it, but that's backwards for for the same reason that the um, uh, as the app coin argument. It it's saying that you have to use the currency for particular service, therefore it should maintain value. But but that's an incorrect conclusion, and of course if the dollar does start to lose value significantly and it starts to look like um, like it may not survive, then then of course the U.S. government is going to stop asking for taxes to be paid in dollars. They'll ask in, in something else. So, well, anyway, those are my three points. Yeah, I think those are good points, but I still would have to go back to the idea of, let's say, an online game or just something that people really want to have. And again, if that coin, let's say it's the game coin for gaming, the game coin becomes really popular. People start really using it and, you know, the exchanges are offering it. So you could exchange game coins for U.S. dollars or for Bitcoin or anything. And the game coin becomes the coin that kids are using to play games. Somebody out there immediately, me, you, somebody down the street, they're going to think, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hoard this, period. I'm going to hoard this because... If they know there's a limited supply of it, right, and there is a limited supply, let's say there's only 100 million game coins ever, maybe they can only be divided into a tenth of a coin that you can use, whatever, you know, somebody out there is going to 
whether rightly or wrongly, whether they're doing it intelligently or not, they're going to be hoarding that. They're going to be holding on to that. And then if it becomes difficult to find for any reason at all, the value of that's going to go up, period. There's no way to stop that, right? So the value of that could go up over time and it could go down. It could go back up. It could be the roller coaster ride. Uh, yeah, well, I said earlier that these currencies are subject to speculative bubbles. And you mentioned this hypothetical person who's who's hoarding the currency, possibly for irrational reasons. Well, I mean, yeah, people are irrational all the time, but it's it's an economic fact that people also learn, and that people the um, the more successful behavior tends to win out, and that more people tend to to imitate a behavior once it becomes successful. So there there still is this inexorable tendency for one currency to win out over others, and for the rest. For, for people, even if you a, a currency is attached to some service that people want, there is the incentive for people to try to hold it for as little time as possible. So, I mean, yeah, it may take some time for this effect to play out, but eventually it will. So what I would like is to see more people understand the economics of currency, especially people in, in the Bitcoin world, mm -hmm. because that will make these altcoin speculative bubbles a lot less severe and it you know people will be a lot less prone to, to being scammed by the mini app coins going around and people are learning it's becoming more and more difficult just issue some random currency and uh, make a profit off of it yeah that's true and there's so many of them right now and do you feel the same way about altcoins that aren't necessarily even tied to an app uh, yeah, uh, so they keep changing the argument, and originally nobody thought about app coins. Uh, I think David Johnston came up with that term. So I keep having to update my articles based on whatever the new thing is that they're trying to use to wiggle out of the argument. But yeah, I mean, I don't think that for any any alternative cryptocurrency, you know, people need to argue not just that it has some special feature, uh, they have to argue that it's going to defeat Bitcoin in order to make it a, a viable investment. You can't expect it to be an investment if it's just going to satisfy some niche market. Because th there aren't niches in currencies. There's always an incentive for one to survive and, and to take over as much as is possible. I also think, though, that in terms of gambling and in terms of playing the stock market, it's so appealing to people. That's part of human nature. You know, we know that in Asia, they like to gamble more than we do. At least that's what statistics tell us. The Chinese like to gamble even more than Americans. And there are a lot of Americans who really do love to gamble. And part of that gambling is you know, playing markets. So as long as we have that part of human beings that like to gamble, that like that risk, that like the promise of, you know, in quotation marks, the promise of a good return for very little work, um, I think that we're going to continue to see exchanges that, let's say, have Litecoin, Dogecoin. We could have those for the next 20 years. For the next 100 years, Dogecoin could be around, and Dogecoin could have no utility, you know, it, it could fund a bobsledding team. It could fund a race car driver. It could be used to fund, you know, the basketball player that gets hurt or what have you, you know, and have no other utility at all except it's used to fund things in sports occasionally. It's the sports coin, right? Sports funding coin. And it's always there in the exchanges. And that part of human nature that loves to gamble continues to buy and sell 
right? You buy a little bit of Doge low, you wait till it goes up, you sell, you make a little profit and back and forth, right? You know, it seems to me that as these exchanges continue to have altcoins, let's just name a few, um, you know, Peercoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin, and Bitcoin, just those four let's talk about. You know, for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, those four could all be on an exchange, and the people who like to gamble, who like to buy low and sell high, just on their Dogecoin, let's say that's all they ever buy. Buy and sell, buy and sell, and they always make $10 a day buying and selling Dogecoin. And there are people that do that. So how could we ever get rid of that part of human nature that likes to gamble, that likes to play the markets? If we can't get rid of that part of human nature, then people are always going to be buying and selling altcoins. Whether those altcoins are used for anything at all outside of that buying and selling, outside of the exchange, may not matter. But the coins still may be around, and they still theoretically could go up in value, not because of anything that makes sense in terms of economics, but because of what doesn't make sense in terms of human nature. I and I, it's so crypto, man, the official cryptocurrency song. I hope all my brothers and sisters around the world will sing along. Look at the cryptocurrency, man, it's such a blurrency, a new one every day. They got the pump and dump, they try to make you a chump, you better watch your back, I say. I hear the troll box singing till my ears are ringing, I'm afraid just to go to bed. And I'm not feeling so well, tell me should I buy or sell? Oh no. I'm afraid to buy, cause it might be too high, man. Whoa. And I'm afraid to sell, you know, because it might be too low. We got the androids talking and the dope gun smoking, it's a thing, mama, you should see. We got the popcorn, man, it's such a hot coin, all the way from Denver to DC. We got the hash coin, now we need a stash coin, or we lose it all, and that's a drag. And I say blockchain, smoke chain, I just like to get a bag. I think I'm gonna fly to Denver I think I'm gonna get a real high Upon a bender, maybe find a heart that's tender Help me to lay down at night You know it's awful strange When another exchange is creeping in Like another bad sin It's a legitimate fear that it will disappear And you will never see your money again You tell me it's the right coin But it's just a light coin Maybe I'll have tea with Charlie Lee Oh baby, and it's blowing my mind Cause I don't know which one to buy Blowing my mind Cause I don't know which one to buy Blowing my mind I don't know which one to buy Oh Lord Oh Makes me want to cry Oh Lord I don't know which I want to buy Help me won't you I and I Cause I don't know which one to buy Good Lord 
said I got my feet on the ground But man, my head is spinning around And all the world is crypto uh, okay, well, I mean, I mean, it's still not something that's sustainable. Like, I could invest in a casino because I would expect that it could continually turn out profits for a long time. But, you know, I don't think that the altcoin is going to have a sustainable value. And if you're saying that they might go up because people like to gamble, I mean, I think that really just proves my point that they're basically scams and that they don't have a sustainable value because I would call out a casino as a scam also. Sure. But no, I mean, I'm not saying that an app coin or altcoin couldn't go up and that you, you couldn't end up making a bunch of money off of it. But I would like uh, people to, to realize that the only reason it would go up is because of a speculative bubble. And, you know, if people are saying like, you know, Litecoin uses a different hashing algorithm, therefore the value is going to go up or somebody says MadeSafeCoin is attached to the MadeSafe network, therefore the value is going to go up. Those are invalid arguments. If, it, if they go up, that's not the reason that they're going up. It's because people have been fooled or because they're just speculating for no reason. Right. I mean, it does seem to me that there could be some examples, for instance, Dogecoin, to use the example of funding a race car driver or the Jamaican bobsled team. They were actually funded by people sending in, you know, millions and millions of Dogecoins and helping to fund that. Now, they came in dead last in the Olympics in China a few years back, right? But it doesn't matter. It kind of proved that you can take this ridiculous coin that started out as a joke and you can show it to people and say, hey, if you think this is kind of a cool idea to be able to fund a race car driver or a Jamaican bobsled team, and you can do it really quickly over your computer without involving PayPal or your credit card or anything like that, you know, you can fund it with Dogecoin. That's something that's kind of fun because they're within certain people, I would say within all of us in certain instances, there is a little bit of philanthropy. There's a little bit of us that likes to help, let's say, the underdog, right? We, we'll throw a dollar toward the underdog if we think that that might help the underdog win, you know, over the big dog, the top dog. So, you know, you could have a coin that has uh, like Dogecoin. Dogecoin could end up being a coin that funds underdogs for the next 100 years. And someone would say, Dogecoin has no intrinsic value or no real utility. And someone would say, are you crazy? This thing has funded 50,000 different Little League sports teams and bought them jerseys and bought them equipment, you know, <laughs> and it's funded all kinds of race car drivers. And so someone could say, wow, that's a, that coin, they can look back and say, when did it start? Well, it started 2012 or whatever, you know, and they could, they could look back and say, wow, from the beginning and all the way through to the present, a hundred years, this coin has actually been really valuable for what people want to do. And we know there's a limited supply and people want to take part in that. So the value of Dogecoin has gone up and gone up, not because of something that makes sense, but because of something that doesn't make sense, something that's unexpected, something that just has to do with what humans do. What do you think of that? Is that crazy? Well, uh, yeah, in, in the long term, things have value because of reasons that make sense. In, in the short term, they can have value for reasons that don't make sense. And, you know, I don't think that Dogecoin has been doing very well lately. Um, it makes a lot more sense to have a, a goofy currency movement 
and you know funding race car drivers and uh, Jamaican bobsled teams and so on. It, it it just makes more sense to do that with Bitcoin. I mean, you can you can have a a goofy sub subculture that's attached to Bitcoin, and that's probably going to be uh, a lot more economically beneficial to everybody. I agree with you, although I do know that certain people thrive on being not in the mainstream. If everybody's doing Bitcoin, hey, we want to do our own thing over here. It's called John Coin. It's called Dogecoin. Nobody else is doing this. We have our own community. We talk our own talk on our forums. People like being on a team that's not that team or that team. It's our own team. Again, that's part of human nature that doesn't necessarily make sense. Like, guys, guys, please just use Bitcoin. They're like, no, no, no. We have our own thing. I think it's part of the unpredictable nature of human beings that might actually be the reason why down the road in the future we see many different cryptocurrencies, many different altcoins for the next 100 years. Again, I don't know that it's going to make sense economically, but if you look at your average person when you and you ask them about money or economics or finance, I mean, people really don't know anything. You know, I was taught nothing in high school, nothing, zero about finance. I didn't even know how to write a check. I was in college before a girlfriend of mine taught me how to write a check. How pathetic is that? In other words, your average American, let's just talk about America. We don't know anything about finance. We don't know anything about money. You know, your average American, when it comes to politics, they know nothing really about the structure of our government, you know, or what a corporatocracy is or an oligarchy, you know, or what anarchy is you ask your average person and they'll say oh i don't know molotov cocktails ski masks breaking windows isn't that anarchy a complete breakdown of society isn't that what anarchy means that's what your average american thinks that anarchy is why because they were poorly educated or they were well educated to believe specific things through misinformation all that i've said is that it's not a valid argument to say that an altcoin will go up because of some feature that it has or because of some niche market that it might serve. There isn't a causal connection there. It could still go up because people are fooled, but that's my only point is that that isn't a valid argument. And, and also that people do learn over time. If you're not taking the long view, it may seem like, like nothing is happening, but um, people's behaviors definitely improve as they get used to a situation. And so I don't know if the altcoin uh, thing is ever going to die down completely, but I, I really think that my predictions from 2013 and 2014 that the movement would decline and uh, dissipate quite a bit are being borne out. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think I tend to agree with you about that. Although, you know, the solar coin, this coin actually incentivizes people to use solar energy. Individuals and companies, they can earn solar coin by putting a solar panel on their roof and they can then convert that solar coin into Bitcoin or US dollars or whatever they want to if they can find an exchange that deals in solar coin. And there are some out there. So I think an altcoin, I think a cryptocurrency could have utility that could make it stand out from these other app coins and these other ones that, you know, are exactly like what you're saying. And basically, a high-risk endeavor and really not worth, for most of them, not worth putting your money into. You're kind of throwing your money down a hole. But when it comes to something like SolarCoin, I don't know, man. It, it's such a great concept. It would just be a matter of getting it really off the ground and getting more people involved in it. Then you'd see great utility in this coin. Okay, well, I haven't investigated SolarCoin, so I can't address the, uh, the 
claims that you made about it. But, you know, I'm so cynical about altcoins that I, I would guess that it doesn't work the way that uh, that you think it does, because I've seen this so many times. Uh, how, however, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, you, you could have a coin that is contractually related to some other product or good, like a, a coin that's exchangeable for beer. Mm -hmm. And if if you had the the issuer um, by uh, by contract say that the coin could be exchanged for something or other, then then it could maintain value. But of course, in that case, it's no longer a distributed system um, because right. its value depends on the promise of the issuer. Right. Some of the ones that I saw coming up early on, I know they're gone now, and exchanges will drop these coins. There's hundreds of them now, right? It just seems crazy. What seems crazy, too, is that there are tens of thousands of people, you know, mostly young people, who continue to trade these digital currencies, these cryptocurrencies, and, you know, make a little bit of money. Some of these traders make $5 a day because they bought low and sold high, and they do the same thing the opposite way or the same thing the same way the next day, and they make a little bit of money off of this. So it's a way for this new kind of subculture to do something on the computer besides just surfing and besides just gaming, right? They can actually really be a trader, a day trader. They can spend their days doing whatever else they do in the summertime when they're not in school. I don't know, smoking pot, sitting around in their underwear, nuking hot pockets in the microwave, drinking tall glasses of cold milk from mom and dad's fridge. Um, and they can make a little bit of money. They can make five bucks a day. It seems to me that that's, I don't know, it keeps them off the streets. Okay, well, I mean, if you're making $5 a day, <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm 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 not too impressed with that. Um, but uh, you know, instead of day trading, maybe they could read a cryptography book and learn how to uh, how to program. And um... exactly, maybe they're doing that at the same time. And hey, maybe their weekly allowance from their parents is only ten bucks. You know, and so if they're making five bucks a day, psh, this is huge. But you know, I mean, there are plenty of people out there who are day trading who are making more than five dollars a day. I knew a gal who just through trading, this is going back a year, she was helping people trade too, right? She was an honest person, which is huge. Uh, if you can get people to trust you and show that return, she was trading using other people's Bitcoins and her own. She was making about a Bitcoin a day, day after day after day after day. And that's huge, you know, and she wasn't just dealing in Bitcoin, she was dealing in other digital currencies. So, I mean, there really is money to be made I also read an article by a guy who was a day trader, a real day trader, right, in the real markets, if we can differentiate. And this guy said when he went over to the Bitcoin markets, it was so easy, right? He said a day there was like a month in the real market because he could make so much money. He said, I don't want to be doing this anymore. I'm tired of it. But the guy was making like 10 grand a week because it was so easy for him because he understood trading so well and he had entered into like a child's version of trading that to him was just so easy. So yeah, there is definitely money to be made. I think that if for no other reason, I think that alone could keep digital currencies alive for a long, long time, whether they have any utility or not, just the fact that they do go up and they go down. You could take Dogecoin and it could stay the, basically the exact same price for the next 100 years. But if it fluctuated just enough up and down, up and down, up and down every single day or every single week, that equals an opportunity 
to make a little bit of money. And that could be the only reason that Dogecoin continues on, that Dogecoin lives, is that opportunity to make a little bit of money every single day. So markets are, um, they have a, a, a property called uh, anti-inductivity, which hmm. means that the more you try to learn about them, the more obscure they become. Because your, um, your, your process of investigating them means that other people will learn to be more sophisticated traders and their strategies will be less discernible and more complicated. And we've seen this with Bitcoin over time. So I know what you're talking about, about, um, about uh, trading with Bitcoin, because I remember when I first read about stock market patterns, I, I was like, this is so weird because I, I, you know, I saw these weird patterns in the um, the pages that explain explain technical analysis, and I never saw them in real life. And then when I first got interested in Bitcoin, I was like, "Oh yeah, there are those uh, there are those technical patterns that I've read about. They're hmm. very obvious." Um, but that's becoming less and less so over time as the traders in Bitcoin are becoming more and more sophisticated, and uh, the, the same thing will happen with with all markets is eventually they'll um, become more and more obscure this also isn't a sustainable source of value a as a market matures only the the best traders are going to be capable of making money off of it as time goes on mm -hmm. and the the bar will be set higher and higher yeah i think we'll look back to these days and we'll look at how easy things were how easy it was to you know, get on an exchange here in 2015, 2016, and to swap some coins. You know, now we also have Shapeshift, which, you know, allows you to just put your Bitcoin in there and turn it into anything else you want to just magically, right? And we have people who are heading up that company who have a great reputation in the Bitcoin world. So, yeah, I think we'll look back on these days as ah, the good old days when Doge was funding bobsled teams and it was easy to shift this altcoin into that altcoin and back to Bitcoin if you wanted to. And I think these will be looked at as simpler times when people were still having a lot of fun with it. And I think it's going to get a lot more business oriented and a lot more competitive down the road. I don't know. What do you think about the whole political side of it? Because, you know, Bitcoin started out with a bang and you had crypto anarchists and you still do saying, look, this could be a major wrecking ball for the financial system, right? For the international banking cartel, if you will. But it's looking like it's starting to turn into, you know, a New York stock exchange type of game where the Bitcoin price very well may be controlled. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, um, Shapeshift is actually an example of something that I was talking about earlier about this tendency to make it easier for, for people to switch between different currencies. And that this will make it easier for people to hold the marginal currencies for shorter periods of time, mm -hmm. and thereby drive the value down. Um, and as to the Bitcoin's price, uh, for most of Bitcoin's history, the, um, the price of, of Bitcoin followed very closely the Metcalf value. Um, there's this idea called um, Metcalf's Law, which says that the value of a network should be related to the square 
of the number of participants. And this is because the number of connections in the network is proportional to the square of the number of participants. Okay. So, you know, if, if there are four people in a network, there are six potential connections. And if there are five people, there are 10 potential connections and so on. Mm -hmm. But for the last uh, year or so, not, not quite, uh, Bitcoin has diverged quite a bit from the Metcalf value. And the, the price of Bitcoin has uh, trended downward, uh, decaying exponentially, um, whereas the Metcalf value has continued to go up. So um, Bitcoin still seems to be growing as far as, as the trade within it is concerned, mm -hmm. uh, but the, the value has not reflected uh, this growth as it would have in the past. So um, I, I don't really know how to explain that, um, but I, I think the most plausible explanation that uh, I have heard proposed so far has to do with uh, the, the fact that the exchanges can operate on a fractional reserve basis without uh, anybody being able to prove that they're behaving properly. So, so effectively, it becomes possible to create Bitcoin substitutes out of thin air, uh, which is your, your balance in the exchange. Uh, if, if you have an account at an exchange, um, you have a certain balance, which is how much the exchange owes you, mm -hmm. but you don't know if the exchange actually has in, in its possession the same number of Bitcoins as the sum of all the balances of the people holding accounts. Right. And of course, we know that Mt. Gox was never operating on a full reserve basis, at least not since very early in its history. Right. And because there's no way to prove that the other exchanges are, are solvent, I would assume that most of them are probably not. Mm -hmm. um, so I think what we are seeing is an increase in the effective supply of Bitcoins as a result of the, the fact that the exchanges uh, um, can, can create substitutes. And some people are working on ways of proving an exchange's balance. And um, I think uh, Peter Todd came up with some prescription like this. Uh, nobody's using it yet, but eventually, once it becomes more normal for exchanges to attempt to prove their balance, uh, which will hopefully happen, then we'll be able to to test this theory. And if it's right, then we could see some period at some point when suddenly a ton of exchanges are put out of business because um, too many people are trying to withdraw from them. Or if there is some other cause, then uh, then I don't know what we'll see. Or we could see two different styles of managing an exchange, one in a shadow banking sort of way and one in a completely transparent way. I guess that's possible, you know, in the same way that we have charities that are completely transparent and other charities that are uh, completely opaque. So before we go, tell me a little bit about the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute and uh, what you all are aiming to do moving forward. 
Well, we wanted to make sure that the anarchist wing of the Bitcoin movement would uh, not be uh, silenced. Well, I mean, it's not like people are out, you know, silencing people, but, but you know, there, not yet. Not there's yet definitely <laughs> an attempt to, to try to, to marginalize yes. the, the anarchist wing. Um, we we want to keep that alive and we want to keep the cypherpunk intellectual tradition alive. And a, a third goal that I, I didn't mention earlier is is to try to incorporate the ideas of Austrian economics as well. Mm -hmm. So the, the Austrians have been pretty hostile to Bitcoin in the past, although that has been changing quite a bit. It's kind of annoying because we, we keep reading articles by Austrians that say things that, you know, we've written about a while ago. Uh, the Austrians are gradually coming around to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are basically our goals. Keep the cypherpunk intellectual tradition alive, give the, the anarchist wing of the Bitcoin movement a voice, and uh, bring in Austrian economics ideas and okay. keep keep those current in, in Bitcoin as well. I think those are all important goals that you guys have, and I applaud the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. Oh, and also let me mention uh, Pierre is working on a Bitcoin accounting software, which is something that has been lacking from Bitcoin since the beginning. So we might have that to contribute uh, pretty soon too. I mean, it's mostly his project, but... Uh, We'll, uh, we'll promote it through the Nakamoto Institute, too. So, final question, and thank you so much, Daniel, for taking time to interview today. What do you see as the future for Bitcoin, the currency, in terms of price? Well, either infinity or zero. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that I can uh, specify it more concretely than that. Um, if, if it fails, it'll really fail, and if it succeeds, uh, it'll, it'll really succeed. If you had to put your money on um, infinity or zero, which one would you put your money on? Uh, well, I mean, I I'm, I definitely have uh, some bitcoins, so I guess that means I'm putting my money on infinity. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm also putting my money on infinity and uh, not sure what's going to happen when the New York Stock Exchange and when the powers that be get a hold of Bitcoin. You know, there could be a lot of horseplay there. I have no idea. That doesn't mean that any of the utility goes out of Bitcoin. That's what I think some people fail to understand. You know, Bitcoin is what it is in terms of the protocol, and it's really unstoppable at this point, but uh, there are lots of tricks that the banksters could play if they decided to play their cards, as it seems like they always do. As to the point you just made, I mean... One of the nice things about cryptography is that it's definitely easier to prove your Bitcoin balance than it would be to, say, prove that uh, you have all of the, the gold that you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. And eventually, uh, there, there will be systems that people can use to prove they, they have what, what they claim to. Mm -hmm. And um, once those become current, it, it's going to be much more difficult for Bitcoin to operate on a fractional reserve basis. And, you know, manipulating credit, well, just creating credit, that's really the only trick that the bankers have. And if they can't do it without people noticing, then they don't really have much of a trick anymore. So eventually, once, you know, an independent accounting system becomes possible that people can use to prove their balances, then we can start demanding that people use it and that they show they have what they claim.
And when that happens, that'll be a big improvement. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I look forward to transparency in all of those arenas, and I hope that it happens. Can you tell our listeners an easy way for them to get a hold of you if they want to continue the conversation with you? My Twitter handle is just uh, Daniel Krawitz, no spaces or underscores or anything. It's K-R-A-W-I-S-Z. All right, listeners, you've been listening to Daniel Krawitz, one of the founders of the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. Daniel, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show and for sharing with us your ideas about finance and Bitcoin and all of that. Great stuff, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed my time on your show. It was nice to meet you. You too. Take care, and I will talk to you sometime down the road. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. And I know that it may sound absurd, but I have for you a magic word. And today the magic word is crypto. C-R-Y-P, as in Paul, T as in Tom, O, crypto, as in the sentence, I hope everyone enjoyed my new song, Crypto, the official cryptocurrency song. I'd like to thank my guests on today's show, Daniel Krawitz, one of the founders of the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute, for his insight into the value of Bitcoin versus the value of cryptocurrencies. And I'd like to thank Johnny Mon, the extraordinary reggae singer who was featured on my incredible new single, Crypto, the official cryptocurrency song. And as a final note, ladies and gentlemen, I have to apologize for not being here last week. Um, I hate to do that. I hated to miss a show. Really, really, truly, I did. I have problems with my hands, my right hand. I had surgery on it 30 years ago. All of my metacarpals are fused together. So (laughs) many, many years of using power tools, woodworking tools, shovels, hoes, rakes, lawnmowers, um... (laughs) And now lots of typing and lots of audio editing using Pro Tools. My hands are thrashed. So in the song Crypto, you'll hear the line in the bridge, I think I'm going to fly to Denver. And my idea is that maybe there is some medicinal something there that I can either uh, take as a tonic or uh, smoke possibly that would ease my pain. The left hand is now experiencing something that's kind of like carpal tunnel syndrome, but it's not carpal tunnel syndrome. In case anyone is curious about why, I had my surgery on my right hand 30 years ago. You can look it up. It's called Kinebox disease. It's not a disease you can catch, uh, but it is called Kinebox. I believe it's K-E-I-N-B-O-C-S. You can find it anyway. It has something to do with one of the bones in the forearm being too short. Anyway, those are my problems, not yours, but um, that is all to say that doing this show for over a year and doing all of the editing and everything for very, very <laughs> little money money is very taxing you know if i were making a hundred bucks per episode it would feel so good hey i'm doing something that i love and i'm making money at it right something we would all love to be doing well some of you guys out there are actually working jobs that you actually really love and you're making good money so i mean imagine if a hundred of the three to four thousand listeners each week imagine if just a hundred of you sent me a dollar each week in tips i mean honest to god think about it i'm working my ass off over here right it's really difficult for me and i have two other jobs full-time jobs think about it guys i'm putting out a lot of content every week with the exception of last week i admit it (laughs) i skipped a week okay i'm putting out a ton of content every week working my butt off and working my hands and fingers 
down to the bone, almost literally, and I could use some tips. Again, if just a hundred of you or two hundred of you would send me 50 cents. Now at this point I sound like I'm begging, and I'll tell you the reason why. It's because I am begging! <laughs> okay, that's enough. Over and out. Talk to you guys later. Send me some tips, please. Now climb aboard, y'all. This train is bound for glory. And there's plenty of room for all. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say. And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day. When he wrote about the way things are and the way things are to be, he gave us all a protocol this world had never seen. Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain. Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. told about the death of old Mount Gox, about traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks. But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee, see they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free. Oh Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain, oh Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain, till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your Give me some exposure Everybody knows your name, sing it Oh, Lord, pass me some more